The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. That answered my question. I was going to say, does anybody know how to turn the sound system on? Because <laughs> I didn't. <clears throat> so thank you very much. Um, Welcome, everybody. And for those of you who don't know me, my name is Robert Cusick, and Andrea is out in Barrie teaching the three-month course out there. So she asked me if I would fill in for her for a couple of, um, of these Tuesday morning classes. And also, I want to apologize. I've got allergies, and my, my voice is kind of weak. So... so um, this morning I thought I would talk about, I, I would like to give some reflections on um, a beautiful talk that I uh, came across from one of my monastic teachers, a man named Ajahn Pasano, who's the abbot up at Abhayagiri Buddhist Monastery. Uh, it's a beautiful talk um, on different aspects of wisdom, how to recognize it, and how to cultivate wisdom. And um, I want to say out of the gate that uh, uh, if I unintentionally misrepresent the Ajahn's teachings or ideas, I'm accepting full responsibility for that. He's not the one who... who uh, uh, misunderstood here. So, uh, having said that, um, this will be a talk on um, uh, how to use suffering as a reflection, as a Dhamma reflection, and as a gateway to um, cultivating deeper wisdom and insight. And so um, we begin by uh, recognizing that it takes a a really strong motivation uh, to reflect on the Dhamma, to reflect on it in a continuous way. And, um, And it takes strong motivation to find a way to recognize refuge in the Dhamma. Uh, And so one of the things that we're pointed to is that uh, a clear perception of truth or the way things are is one of the first things um, we're pointed to. So we've all heard the the teaching that uh, if something comes up in our meditation or in our life that we find um, difficult to be with, that the way... Uh, through that difficulty is to turn and face it and tune into it rather than to ignore it or push it away or resist it, which only seems to exacerbate uh, whatever it is that's troubling us. So uh, we all spend a lot of time doing that. It's just natural. It's part of what we do as human beings. We try to have things be pleasant, and when they're not, we try to get as far away from them as possible, or we we push back in some way. However, the, the Buddha teaches us that dukkha or, or suffering, uh, this unsatisfactory nature where things just aren't right, they don't have to be horrible, outrageous, painful, painful suffering, but it could just be the disease that we have when things don't go our way or we get irritable or impatient or whatever. This kind of dukkha is like a baseline in our experience. And most of us, are we live with this in such a continuous way that we don't cultivate the skill to recognize that it's actually present. So um, when the mind is entrained, it's difficult to accept that the way through this is to actually learn how to be with it. 
So um, the Buddha teaches us that the end of dukkha comes not from denying or or escaping it, but rather from turning towards it and tuning into the direct experience of the discomfort or the dissatisfaction itself. This was a big point that the Ajahn was making. And what this does is that it stretches our heart, it opens our mind. And when we can see within our direct feeling the truth of suffering, then our hearts open with compassion. We have a compassionate response to this kind of difficulty in our life. So uh, there's, the Buddha t- points us to the truth that there's an underlying inability for any kind of experience to satisfy, gratify us, or make us feel complete. So we, this is interesting because we, we keep looking outside of ourselves. We keep looking for ways to find this place of safety, this place of security, this place of refuge. But um, the fact is that dukkha is the nature of things. This is, and this isn't bad news, it's just that this is actually good news because if we can see that suffering is there as a baseline, we can begin to cultivate this truth um, for reflection. So we can begin to use dukkha itself. We can begin to use suffering itself as a reflection that opens up, opens us to deeper and deeper um, possibilities for uh, insight and wisdom. So uh, the Buddha taught that there are two ways that the Dhamma is expressed, and one is the way of truth, and the other is the way of practice. So the way of truth would be this ability to see things as they truly are. So we're in a situation, um, we become upset about something, and we spin off on the details of the story of whatever is upsetting us. And we fail to see the upset itself. We fail to see that we're angry or anxious or frightened or in some way disoriented by what has just happened. So um, this is the way of truth. The way of practice is actually the Noble Eightfold Path. And it's the way that we cultivate the skillful means with which to deal with the truth of the way things are. So this is really important. So these two aspects of wisdom are the core of this whole talk that the Ajahn was giving. And I'm just going to review that once more. The way of truth is the way is the ability to see things as they actually are. And the way of practice is to the, the way of cultivating the skillful means to deal with the truth of the way things really are. So if dukkha is the core problem of the human condition, we need to consider that... Um, Whatever we're experiencing, whether it's physical or mental, is generally, almost universally, conditioned phenomena, unless we've somehow transcended this. And the truth of all conditioned phenomena is that it's unsatisfactory, so it's inherently dukkha. It's constantly changing, so it's anicca or impermanent, and it's empty of, a, of an abiding self. So there's no self to be found in the frustration of whatever is upset, upsetting us. The truth is, something, we're upset. Upset is present. But if we look at this upset, we will see that it's not only filled with 
suffering, but that it's changing from moment to moment to moment, and that there's nowhere in this upset where we can find a permanent abiding self because things change. We can only be angry for so long. We can only be happy for so long. We can only be frightened for so long. We can only be anything for so long. So the way of practice or the cultivation of this noble eightfold path is actually a roadmap out of dukkha. And it's grounded in qualities that lead to mental brightness, to a sense of clarity, to a a kind of stillness that we can sometimes touch in meditation, and a general experience of a deep, deeper kind of happiness. And I'm sure that, that you can all relate to this in your own life experience. When, once you start to quiet down, once you start to uh, let go of things, put things down, there's a kind of freedom that comes from that relinquishment. There's a kind of happiness, a kind of clarity and stillness that comes. It's actually beautiful. And um, it's also important to, to point out here that um, this is a gradual path. This doesn't happen like overnight. This is something that we cultivate as a practice. Um, so this, this practice um, is, as, as many of you know, the cultivation of sila, samadhi, and panya. So it's the cultivation of virtue or integrity or morality, which is sila. So first we build the foundation of our actions and our speech on virtue on morality, on integrity. So we can't really settle into a meditative experience, which is samadhi, our concentration, if we're living in a way that's out of sync with our, the integrity in our heart. So we first have to understand that this whole path of practice is established and built on this foundation of uh, sila. And we can do this simultaneously. It's not necessarily a linear, linear progression, but if it were, it has to be for the sake of this <laughs> talk, concentration comes next. So it would be, we begin then to be able to really cultivate meditation because we begin to see in our meditation, we begin to use a skillful means to see in our meditation what's happening. So in the beginning, when our minds aren't disciplined, we sit down and we meditate, and the mind runs here and moves there, and we're knocked off center from thoughts of the past, thoughts of the future, whatever. Uh, we, we aren't really able to settle down very easily. And so one of the things that promotes the settling is to be able to, um, is to come into the meditation uh, with a foundation of integrity, with a foundation of uh, a commitment to morality, so I just give you a sort of a dumb example. If if you're uh, you know if at our jobs we um, go home with pens and pads of paper that haven't been purchased for us, it's not a really big thing and it's not going to break the company. But something as small as that can niggle away at uh, your sense of peace of mind, your ability to be in integrity with yourself. So this is a really important um, understanding because many people start their practice, their Buddhist practice, through the doorway of meditation. That's certainly the way that it happened for me. However, the meditation 
will sooner or later begin to work on us in some sort of mysterious way where we just begin to start to notice when we're not in integrity with ourselves or with other people. And we, it begins to bother us. It begins, it's almost like we activate our sense of conscience. And so we just naturally start to um, behave in a way that doesn't distress us. So, as I said, these things go together or they can be developed separately. In Asia, it's very, very ordinary to, for people not to meditate for years and years and years. They'll just practice sila, generosity, opening the heart, being kind to others, helping the monks, helping other people. It's very much um, the cultivation of this heart quality. There's beautiful spiritual quality. But then the third um, leg of this way of practice is the cultivation of wisdom, which grows out of uh, virtue and meditation. So um, there seems to be an interface between the nature of the teachings and the nature of truth. So the teachings tell us that there is dukkha, the truth of the way things really are. There is this underlying sense that things are just not perfect or that they're outrageously painful. <laughs> this is the whole, the whole spectrum and with the whole constellation of things that comes with this. But it also uh, teaches us that, the way to, that there's a way to apply wisdom to overcome dukkha. So when the Buddha gave us the Four Noble Truths, um, the first truth being that there is suffering, the second truth being that there's a cause of suffering, which is generally clinging or, uh, you know, pushing away resistance in some way. The third noble truth is that there's a way out of suffering. And the fourth noble truth is that through the application of wisdom, we can overcome dukkha by practicing the path of practice, which is the Noble Eightfold Path. So uh, when we take these two aspects, truth and practice, and investigate, which, uh, to investigate for what works for overcoming our discontent and disease, Uh, we discover that embedded in the teaching is a way of practice that cultivates qualities which are um, just naturally wholesome, just naturally harmless, just naturally in sync with the highest aspirations within us. So this practice has a way, uh, Gil told me on one of my first retreats, which I loved and I have never forgotten, you're not doing the practice. The practice is doing you, no matter what you think. So uh, this I found to be really true. So, so embedded in this practice it, are qualities that, are, that start to come forth that are really harmless and wholesome. And when this happens, this automatically leads to a brightness in our minds, a sense of peace, a sense of opening, which is conducive to meditation. Does this make sense? So, so when we, it's almost like we begin to be purified. And this purification sort of conditions and causes... Um, it creates the causes and conditions for our meditation to actually settle and open up for us. And so what it does is it leads to this place of concentration. So when, we're, when we meditate and we have these brief moments or maybe longer moments where things just really settle down for a while, where we're not fighting with ourselves, where um, these things called hindrances aren't really, you know, 
buffeting us about, we begin to feel kind of the freedom from relinquishment, the freedom from holding on or the freedom from fighting and resisting our experience. And this is the beginning of concentration. So with a concentrated mind, uh, we have, we find ourselves in a place where wisdom can actually begin to come forth. Until then, we're just sort of bouncing around. And that's completely fine because that's part of the process of disciplining the mind and letting the mind settle. And it's also one of the ways that we can see what's appropriate and necessary and what needs to be let go of or what needs to be cultivated. So again, this comes back to being able to see the truth of the way things really are. So if we never sit down and we never encounter what's going on in our minds or our hearts, we will never know, we will never find the way out of our suffering because we haven't seen it. So one of the functions of wisdom then is to direct attention it's to learn how to take our attention and intentionally direct it so <clears throat> these two aspects need to be seen and they need to be understood correctly so we don't get stuck because it's really easy to sort of go over the deep end on it. So I'll give you an example. As you begin to see that that when you quiet down and you are, at least you quiet down enough to see that your mind is undisciplined and that there's a lot of suffering going on in there, um, that's a recognition of truth. You see that suffering is present. But you might then say, oh, well, everything is suffering. There's just no way out, so what the hell's the difference? You see, there's suffering everywhere. There's suffering in Syria. There's suffering in Redwood City. There's suffering in our own hearts. There's suffering in the life of our families. We suffer at work. So um, if we see that dukkha is in our experience and all we are is overwhelmed by it, we actually miss the point. And this is really important. Um, It's important to be able to see this, but just seeing this by itself, that their suffering is present, just using this sort of mindful recognition of suffering, this is not enough because this kind of seeing or this kind of discernment is kind of logical. It's not, there's something missing from it. Does this resonate for you? If all you can do is see that there's suffering, in fact, yes, you are seeing the truth of the way things are, but you're only seeing it from a, in a limited sort of way. It's not freeing your heart. By seeing that there's suffering, that doesn't free your heart necessarily. At least it doesn't free my heart. On the other hand, if we're practicing only to gain things, to gain pleasant states, to gain you know, transcendent, uh, transcendental states or whatever, um, our practice isn't necessarily informed by the truth of impermanence or dukkha or non-self, which is what we discover as wisdom arises. We begin to look at the phenomenal, at all phenomena, whether it's physical or whether it's mental, and we see that it is inherently 
it, these three qualities or characteristics are inherent in all of this. So um, if all we're doing is trying to gain benefit, we can, we can spend all, all of our time striving for these exalted states and we just drive ourselves nuts trying to do and to be busy all the time. And, um, and then finally we give up because it doesn't work and it doesn't liberate our heart. And so we wonder what's really going on. So to the degree that it's possible, we need to see that things truly, are, that these three characteristics truly are present in our experience and um, an, an appropriate response to this is one of kindness, of caring, and of patient endurance. This is where compassion comes in. You see, we, we find ourselves facing the reality of our own disease, our own suffering, and the suffering of other people. And sometimes we're just overwhelmed and so we try to um, we try to understand it, or we try to get away from it, and um, it just doesn't work. So, if we can hold it with kindness and caring, with patient endurance, uh, then then it somehow these wholesome qualities, which are basically sila, can come forth. Generosity, integrity, you know, the willingness to be present for others. These beautiful human qualities that every one of us has, um, but that we're not always in touch with in such a direct way. So... um, we need wisdom to see and relinquish our deeply rooted habits of mind. And another way of saying our deeply rooted habits of mind is to say our defilements. So, so the defilement could be anything that causes us to suffer or causes other people to suffer, any kind of impatience, any kind of, you know, anger, any kind of, all of those things. So we need wisdom to see this, and, um, we, we, and, and to, let it, to let these things go, to relinquish them. I personally believe that we need compassion. Compassion is what allows us to be with the truth of the fact that within us stirs shadows as well as luminosity and light. Within us, there is anger. Within us, there is jealousy. Within us, there is all of these other qualities. And rather than um, resisting them or running away from them, by turning towards them and tuning into them, in a very real way, it's by doing that that the skillful means for dealing with them in a wholesome way begins to be um, experienced or revealed in some way. So the teachings give us the skillful means or the tools basically with which to investigate these things. And in this way, uh, with wisdom, we, we gradually, gradually, slowly begin to strike some sort of a balance. So, um, one of the difficulties with Buddhism uh, is its reliance on... Um, Wisdom, its emphasis on wisdom. And there are other religions which really uh, are other, you know, paths of practice that really emphasize faith. 
And sometimes it's a kind of blind faith, but faith is really front and center. In Buddhism, um, there's an emphasis on wisdom. Uh, and as I pointed out earlier, we can, we can actually discern the, our mental habits that are causing us to suffer, and we can see our prejudices and our defilements, so to speak. Um, but this doesn't necessarily mean that we're free or that we have the insight that leads to letting go, to relinquishment. You see, in itself, if we overemphasize this quality, which you can almost associate with thinking, although it's not thinking, with, with straight mindfulness, this doesn't necessarily <coughs> uh, free us or... <coughs> or even give us the insight that leads to putting things down, to relinquishing things. And that's where freedom's found. We can do all the practices in the world, but as long as we're holding on to things, as long as we're clinging, we are not free. And we are not in integrity with that place that absolutely is confident that there is freedom. Our hearts somehow we know in our hearts that we're free. See? It's like we, no one has to really guess it, guess about that or debate about that. We all know that or we wouldn't bother practicing. So, um, so what this means is that um, we can still get caught if we only use the wisdom faculty. So somehow faith has to play a part. Yeah. We can, we can look at negative thinking and it can seem true and it can be supported by the Dhamma. We, we have seen that everything is dukkha. Everything that arises in our experience is actually inherently unsatisfactory because there's no stability there. But um, as I mentioned a moment ago, this kind of logic doesn't actually free us. And, And the heart knows freedom. And so if we're not there, the heart is going to tell us. So to be complete, Wisdom needs to be nurtured by faith because this allows the mystery to be present. This allows us to be with the unknown. This allows us to be with things that we can't control. This allows us to be with grief. This allows us to be with all of the things that are part of our lives that are just absolutely true, but... um, that are difficult to be with. <clears throat> so, so faith can be cultivated in, in a number of different ways. And, and we will each find our own ways. But in Buddhism, faith can be cultivated by taking refuge in, in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. By actually taking refuge in in the teachings that we're practicing. Um, Faith, uh, you can have faith in the enlightenment of the Buddha or in the possibility for your own enlightenment. There's not a person sitting here that doesn't have the possibility to be enlightened. Every one of us does. We can have faith in the teachings, the Dhamma. We can have faith in our place in the lineage of noble ones who attained, who actually attained and actualized this practice and passed it on to us down through the years. I mean, it's really awesome when you think that we are sitting here as the beneficiaries in this lineage of practitioners, yogis, enlightened beings who went 
who came before us and gave this to us. And through us, this continues to live and will be passed on in very mysterious ways. Ways that, you know, logic can't figure out, but that we can accept on faith. So when faith informs wisdom, what happens is that we actually start to let go. You see, I was with a friend recently who um, died, and um, it was a really very moving experience to um, be a witness to that. But... um, this is absolutely true. Uh, when faith and wisdom came into balance, there was an acceptance of things in a way that was palpably different. And there was a putting down and a relinquishment of the clinging and holding on. And with that was a relinquishment of the fears around the whole process of dying. It was really quite dramatic and quite beautiful and also quite inspiring. So therefore, um, we need this balance of wisdom and faith. Um, Our minds work in a way that it's easy to, um, to logically support our deeply rooted habits are basically our defilements. We can justify these things to ourselves without any trouble at all. This is just the way that our minds work. And and if we go that route, which is what most of us do, this creates the causes and conditions for suffering to to perpetuate, for us to sort of ruminate and go, we're like gerbils on one of those wheels. We just do the same thing over and over and over again and we expect a different result. Um, So if we can see that this is the way our minds work, we can begin to, um, we can begin to see the way that faith and um, wisdom really have to collaborate. Or we could say uh, compassion and wisdom. I, 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 f- I feel that compassion is inherently accepting of that which can't be controlled, <laughs> of that which is unknown, of that which is too much to bear. Compassion can hold it all. So, um, one of the functions of faith is that, or excuse me, one of the functions of wisdom is to see the truth and to see what's skillful and beneficial to to see how to deal with the truth. So I'm coming back to these two um, these two aspects of wisdom that we talked about earlier, which is the way of truth or seeing the way things really are, and then the way of practice, which is cultivating the skillful means to deal with the way things really are. So <laughs> So, as I said, uh, we have to cultivate and support faith, which allows us to implement this uh, quality of wisdom and uh, allows it to fully flower and fruit in our lives. So it could be said that the value of our human life is realized in our shared ability to create goodness and to create understanding and to actually penetrate the truth. So all we need to do is learn how to tune into and cultivate these skillful means (laughs) and keep that as our focus.
So those are some of my reflections on the wise Ajahn's talk. Um, I'll, I'll just recap them uh, here or review them briefly. Uh, <clears throat> we need strong motivation in order to, to cultivate and recognize truth. Truth in this case is seeing things the way they actually are seeing our experience for what it actually is. And when we see that we're suffering and that this is the truth of our phenomenal experience, we generally have a hard time accepting this. And so we um, default to our old habits of avoiding that which is unpleasant and looking for that which is pleasant. Um, so the Buddha teaches us that we can use dukkha as an object of reflection. We can use this contemplation of suffering as a doorway to cultivate wisdom. Rather than to run away from it, we are encouraged to turn to and tune into it. So... Um, Again, it's an aspect of truth to be cultivated for reflection. And then there are these two different aspects of wisdom, uh, which we see in, in the way of truth and the way of practice, which I talked about. And... Um, <clears throat> This to see a function of wisdom as being able to direct our attention. This is tremendously important because if we can direct our attention, we can generally stay with what it's directed to for longer periods of time. Over time, we gradually are able to be with things more. So in this way, we're learning to um, turn to and tune into rather than to just immediately bolt from our experience. And if you think about your meditation experience, I mean, this all translates into our day-to-day life. And we can find examples of this um, ad nauseum. But if we just look at our meditation experience and we see um, what happens when... Uh, uh, when we meet our our meditation with resistance and we're unaware that resistance is there. We're just like full of judgments and self-doubts and all sorts of unkind attitudes. So... Um, this function of wisdom means that we're able to direct our attention to the way things are. And um, doing so, it's, it's important that we, you know, we don't get stuck by misunderstanding how these two things work. Um, and then, you know, I, want, I, I, I do want to admit um, and acknowledge that all of this sounds <laughs> sounds wonderful and sort of easy to do. It's it's not. It's really difficult. It's a practice and it's a gradual practice. We we can't be with things as they really are without patience and kindness and um, the willingness to stick with it. Otherwise. We're just human beings, and and we want out. We don't want to be there. So we try. We do the best that we can. Sometimes we get it. Most of the time we don't. Then we get it again, enough to be like a carrot on the end of a stick, you see. But if we just stay... Um, tuned into these, this deep aspiration in our heart 
to be free, to be free from this suffering, to be happy, to be secure in some way, and to recognize that within us, this wish for happiness is no different than that wish is in every other person that we meet. That wish is there for all of us. So um, it's not easy to actualize this, but it is possible. And people have done it for thousands of years, and we can all do it ourselves. And we all are doing it to various degrees. And when we do begin to see that the practice actually is working, um, you know, one of the, the beautiful things that arises is this feeling of, of um, gratitude, you know, and, and appreciation. Wow, this hasn't been easy, but I'm really, I'm really grateful <laughs> for this practice. It's just changing my life. It's changed my life. It's changing my life. So, um, and finally, uh, in cultivating these aspects, these different aspects of wisdom, uh, we want to be conscious of the role of faith and ways that we can cultivate faith um, because it's through that that we become free and that we have access to the insight that allows us to begin to let go, to die without being frightened. So from whether we're dying physically or whether it's moment-to-moment changing experience, to not hold on, to let go, to see that this is the truth of things. This is the absolute truth of things. And And when we start to let go, we start to experience freedom. So we just need to learn how to tune in and cultivate those skillful means and keep that as the focus of our practice. So those are my reflections. I wanted to also, since there's a few more minutes here, I saw a wonderful um, article from, that was in the New York Times um, called The Value of Suffering. And it was written by, um, oh, it didn't print out. Oh, boy. I'm gonna, I'm gonna can this. I'll, I'll do this the next time I come because the page I actually wanted <laughs> didn't print out. It had the quote that I wanted in, but it, it was all to, to do with using suffering as a way to find liberation and also um, to recognize that this sounds high and lofty and very um, beautiful, but there's the human quality that still, the tears still come. And so the recognition of both of those things is what makes us whole human beings and what, what we recognize in one another. We're not all, I, I mean, We can't, we can't be necessarily saints. We might aspire to saint, saintliness and to um, being able to transcend our, our suffering um, through you know, pure wisdom. But as long as we're human beings, you know, if something hurts, if we lose something, we're, we're going to shed that tear. <laughs> We're going to, this is what makes us human. This is what connects us to one another. This is our shared common humanity. So I'll bring the next, I'll bring that page the next time I come. I'm sorry? 
the, the date of the article? Did you say? Um, it didn't print out, unfortunately. What happened is it wouldn't print, and so I just copied it and put it into a Word document, but it must have cut off. I must not have copied the whole thing. So it just means that we'll talk about that the next time. So uh, we have a few more minutes if anybody has any uh, comments or questions or observations. I think what was very important in the talk for me was this notion of faith in Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And it's not so much the way I took it or understood it, it's not so much that the light is at the end of the tunnel, but that there's a little light in the tunnel. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's very sweet. I'm I'm sure that there is. I think that's part of what I was pointing to. You know, the the potential to f- free ourselves from dukkha. The Buddha gave us the way, and um, as we've been told on countless occasions, he said, "If I didn't know that this actually worked, I wouldn't bother teaching it to you." So, really, it's up to us. He. We can read all the scriptures. We can listen to all the talks um, in the audio Dharma library or Dharma seed. And unless we practice ourselves, we will never truly understand it um, and be able to manifest it and actualize it in our lives. But if we do... um, practice sooner or later gradually it begins to take root and um, we begin to see some of the things that cause us to suffer and some of the things that are obscurations to our understanding and we begin to simply let them go see that's the key that's the key. This is one of the things that I found in my own practice. I used to try to find ways that I could sort of like bludgeon my suffering to death or run away from it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's impossible. It's a formula for continued suffering. What happens is it's through wisdom and wisdom cultivated and nourished with compassion or faith that we're able to see as it is and in the seeing we can let go it's the seeing that lets go you see it's like another very simple example if a person has an addiction problem drugs or alcohol or something like that until that it's said until that person actually sort of hits the bottom or whatever until they see, I have got a problem. You see, they're in total denial. You see, once they know that they have a problem, once they've admitted that they have a problem to themselves, that's the beginning of the end of the problem. Now, they may relapse a hundred times, but once it's been seen, it, there's, it doesn't have the power any longer. You see, once any of our our defilements or our deeply rooted mental habits are seen, so there is light at the end of the tunnel. There's light in the tunnel. <laughs> yes. Thank you very much um, for what you've done today. Um, <clears throat> I've always thought Buddha was saying, "There's suffering, and I've got a way out for you," mm-hmm. and that is kind of what he's saying. But when you mentioned the name of the article, Value of Suffering. Is that what the name of it was? That was what it was titled, yeah. It was yeah. in the opinion page. That because I grew up in a tradition where I, I thought suffering was the way I finally surrendered. If I, it, That uh, suffering wasn't something I could get out of. But mm-hmm. what you've said today is exactly the same thing that I've grown up with mm-hmm. and is still part of my practice. And that is 
to accept things as they are. But it's hard to see things as they are. It's very difficult because it means I have to look at myself. And what uh, this practice has done for me in, is that it's removed a big hunk of judgment from me, mm-hmm. but not all of it, of course. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I can see that when that thing comes up to diminish others by my judgment, uh, that I know I'm off center, mm-hmm. and then you and you tell me it's the thing I just loved. Andrew used to say this all the time. Instead of this is a sin or this is bad, it's not skillful. Right. And the most thing I want to do is to be skillful in my relationships because that's where it all is exposed for right. me. Thank you. Yes, wonderful. So. Um, yeah, I thank you for those comments, and um, I would say that you're on the right track. And I would say that um, I just want to make one little uh, <laughs> nuanced comment. Um, suffering in itself, for the sake of suffering, is not skillful. No. But suffering as a reflection, to reflect on suffering... To, f- to see the causes of suffering, to see the conditions in which suffering is perpetuated, is the way to freedom. So the Buddha taught there is suffering, and there is an end of suffering, and there is a path that leads to the end of suffering. He didn't teach a path to he didn't his teaching was not to deny suffering his teaching was to actually I don't necessarily want to say embrace but to certainly acknowledge and recognize that this is in fact true and part of the nature of all phenomena so um, that's something that we also work with in when we're cultivating compassion. You know, many people will say, well, why should I be compassionate? Um, why are you telling me to, <laughs> that this compassion will get rid of my suffering when it's through suffering that I become a better person or whatever, you see? And so <clears throat> that's a legitimate question. That's a very legitimate question. But, um, you know, it's like to just grit your teeth and go through suffering is not necessarily the most skillful way to be with it. And um, and compassion is the natural response to suffering. That's true. That's yeah. True. It's very true. So, yeah. Just <laughs> naming, just naming it sometimes gets a breakthrough. Just to name it That's is right. really important part of what of the process. That's absolutely right. And the role of self-compassion and the cultivation of self-compassion and the naming of our own suffering and the extending of kindness to ourselves literally with putting our hands on our heart or (laughs) patting ourselves on the back. This is tremendously kind and caring and um, a useful thing to do. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I think there was a was there a question over here? No. Could you do it on the mic because it's being recorded? Um, I just had a comment as far as suffering. Um, Hold it up to your mouth like an ice cream cone. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now I've lost my train of thought, but I guess from what you were saying, it seems to me that if you're stuck on a certain aspect of suffering or you're you're not doing it with your heart and your mind um, to release it compassionately. You stay stuck in that one form of suffering and you don't get to experience other forms of suffering, which is inevitably what we're here for, I feel, mm-hmm. um, to get us to the next level or for us to become closer to enlightenment 
Um, if you're staying stuck, stuck on certain forms mm-hmm. of suffering, you can't mm-hmm. progress. It's, it's true. If we get stuck, the nature, the definition of stuck is that we're stuck, <laughs> you see? And so um, it is easy to get stuck. And the way that we get stuck is that we either don't see what's going on, so we haven't seen the truth of the way things really are, or if we have seen that, so so there could be that we're that could be a situation where where we're stuck on the story of a particular kind of suffering. Right. You know, my wife left me and didn't do right by me, or my husband's a jerk, or my boss is this or etc. etc. We might be just ruminating on a story that happens. So this is a kind of suffering. And when that happens, there's no escape. Because why? Because we are clinging, we're holding on to that story. And we're identified with that story. We think that's what our life is. That person is, you know, the way we think that person is. We're completely off-center and outward-directed. So we're not able to see the truth of the fact that, you know, we're off-center. The truth is we're off-center. Once we see that we're off-center, once we have that perception, we can then begin somehow the ways to deal with that begin to reveal themselves gradually, slowly. So we begin to cultivate a skillful response, a skillful way to be with whatever it is. So that's one example. The other example would be if we actually saw that we were suffering and that suffering is, in, and then we just become overwhelmed by the suffering and say, it doesn't make any difference, it's all suffering anyway. And so it's kind of like we're manipulating the truth of the way things are in order to, um, in order to perpetuate our old habits. And so this is why it's important to you know, find some sort of a balance between these things. And I really appreciated the fact that you um, brought up, you know, opening your heart because it is it can be such a logical response to you can have such a logical response to suffering and say, oh, I, I see the truth of why I'm suffering. You, you're constantly focused on the truth of why you're suffering. But then you forget to bring your heart into it. Yeah, it does. It makes a lot of sense. And I want to. I, again, add one new nuanced <laughs> addition to that. I want to say that when, maybe not always, but this is my experience. I'll share my experience with you. When I try to bring my heart to suffering, when I actually try to be kind and good and compassionate, that trying somehow gets in the way, you know? And when I can't be kind and good and compassionate in the face of some challenge, then it's doubly difficult because then I judge myself for being a phony Buddhist and a phony blah, 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 (laughs) you see? But when I actually see suffering is there, This is suffering. I don't actually need to tell myself this is suffering. There's a direct knowing of suffering. I get it. The heart just naturally opens. So it might not feel gushy and warm in the way compassion sometimes feels when you see a child that's hurt and you naturally want to help. That's, that's That's an expression of compassion. Compassion in this sense that I just was referring to comes through the wisdom door. At least that's what it seems like to me. And, and then there's a knowing, oh, suffering is here. I can't change the fact that I've lost something that's dear to me. I can't change the fact that my friend died and it's making me sad, you know? But I can hold, I can hold that in a place of compassion. 
if I can just recognize the suffering. And, and, then, and then there's a kind of opening, a kind of letting go of things. So, you. you're welcome. Okay, so I think that we're five minutes over our time. And <laughs> I want to thank you all for your kind attention. And I apologize again for my funny voice with my allergies. And I'll finish by saying to Ajahn Pasano that if I didn't get his talk perfectly clear, I'm assuming responsibility. But I think I was pretty close to the mark. So thank you all. Thank you. Okay. <laughs>